Open your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 12 on this Mother's Day, a day when we celebrate in so many ways those women in our lives who have uh, exemplified and demonstrated so much warmth and affection in our lives. Mother's Day is really a family day because of the bedrock role that women play in all of uh, our homes. We think about our family and we think about that warmth and that comfort, and it evokes uh, so, so many sort of nostalgic and, and precious thoughts in our minds. We celebrate those things on these kinds of occasions. And of course, we know that not every family looks the same. There are regular families. There are single parent families. When we talk about the family, people talk about the nuclear family or sometimes the multi-generational family. Or in these days, people are even talking about blended families, racial, multiracial families. We know there are extended families or those who don't necessarily have strong family connections these days are even speaking about their chosen family, their found family, their family of choice. But all of those things kind of, uh, I guess, demonstrate to us uh, how eager people are for that kind of connection, that kind of association, because family is important, because family generates so many good feelings for so many people. Of course, we use the word family in broader senses. We speak about a family in terms of relationships that go beyond just birth and marriage. We speak about our uh, our football family, our uh, work family, our whatever it might be. We use that word to kind of communicate some sense of community, some sense of connection that we have with people. General, general sense of structure and order and predictability or within the home, education and, and rearing and upbringing and certainly care and protection. And it's most utilitarian sense, family is that design that God has given us for the reproduction of humans biologically and socially. But even beyond the utilitarian function, there are ideas of peace and rest and warmth and fulfillment and love and trust and acceptance. Sure, those things are disrupted sometimes by sin and disorder and disloyalty and dishonesty when families tear apart and marriages break up, when people are ripped asunder. But you might assume that that will never happen to you if you are in Christ. You might assume that family, of all things, are going to be the one place where you're going to find joy and trust and peace, and even more so when you draw near to God. You would experience maybe an increasing depth of those kinds of things. But it's not always the case. On this day, this Mother's Day, when we think about family relationships so much, so many of you are perplexed. You're in pain because of the divisions and the distancing. There's a lot of pressure that comes on families when it comes to their faith in Christ. 
when it comes to their devotion to the Lord. It is, in fact, at that very fulcrum point that they feel some of their greatest pain on some of these days because their allegiance to Christ and His commands they find, ironically, driving divisions between them and their loved ones. Well, long before that ever happened to you, it happened to our Savior. And it's the subject of our passage as we come back to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. He is Himself experiencing distancing, divisions, pain and separation between Him and His family members. And this comes to us at the end of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46 through 50. We've been looking at this chapter for a number of weeks. But in God's providence, we come to this passage today when Jesus has, if you will, a, a confrontation, a, a, a moment of tension with his family. This all takes place, Matthew tells us in verse 46, while he was still speaking. In other words, it takes place in the course of of one of the days of his ministry. As a matter of fact, in this particular day, as we've been seeing in the past several weeks, it was a day that had begun with him casting a demon out of a man, which then led to confrontations and tensions with the Pharisees. And that's evoked from Jesus' teaching and parables and, and, uh, and uh, correction on their behalf, even justification and validation of his person and who he is in terms of being the Son of God and the true Messiah of Israel. And after this long day of teaching and all of this tense conflict that had come with the Pharisees, at the end of this whole episode, Jesus' family shows up outside the house where he's been teaching, and they make their attempts to enter and to speak to him, uh, speak to him. And all of it provides an opportunity for Jesus to address this issue of family, of family loyalty, family relationships, family connections, and affections. And what he presents to us in these few verses is a really a redefinition of family, an expansion of family, a family that goes beyond natural family, a family that can only be called a spiritual family, a family that supersedes all other family connections and all other family definitions. This is the family in the gospel, the family in Christ. Listen to this as I read it for us as we get started. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This passage is really a a lot, a lot to take in, a lot to be said. But at the very heart of it is this basic truth, that the primary connection that Jesus forms in this life is spiritual and not natural. Now you could flip that around the other way and say that the primary connection that we have with Christ is spiritual 
and not natural. You might assume the opposite. You might assume that those who follow Jesus follow him because of natural connections. You might assume that they're born to it, that they're born with the right connections, with the right sort of social environment, with the right circumstances, with the right upbringing, the right household. You might Imagine that all of that is what really is at the heart of the explanation of their religious commitments. But what Matthew's telling us, what all the Gospels ultimately tell us, is that the, those connections did not exist in Jesus' family. His natural family, his natural household, his natural uh, connections by birth did not result necessarily in believing faithful, affectionate, supportive people, at least in terms of his religion. You might expect these to be the very people who are most proud of him. I mean, they have a, they have a well-known brother, a well-known son. You might expect these to be the people who are most excited to see his sort of, his sort of elevation to prominence, his popularity, to, to be the ones who were the biggest supporter of his teaching and his ministry and his good deeds and his healing and even his miracles. You might expect them to be the ones who supported him above everyone else. But it wasn't true. Because the closest connections that you have in Christ are not natural. They're spiritual. They don't arise from natural means. They don't arise from natural sources. They're supernatural. They come from the supernatural workings of God and they're only explained supernaturally. Now this supernatural connection, this spiritual family is detailed for us here in just a few developments in this little episode that Matthew gives to us. First of all, you can see the first sort of development here when uh, in verse 46, Jesus confounded his natural family. He, Matthew doesn't tell us why, but he just tells us that they came. And while Jesus was speaking, they wanted to speak to him. They were standing outside asking to speak to him. No explanation of why they came. No explanation really of even uh, where they came from or even what they wanted to say. Matthew doesn't give us any of that kind of background. Uh, we don't know how long they traveled or, or any of those things. We have to kind of piece all that together from sort of the meta data that we have from all the other Gospels. And thankfully, there is a good bit of that that we can surmise. I mean, the first point that we could uh, sort of, uh, I guess you might say, gather about Jesus's family was it was a large family. There were a number of brothers and sisters. We know, for example, even over in Matthew 13, verse 55, it speaks about Jesus' brothers being James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So he had at least four brothers. There were at least five boys in this family. And it says also that all of his sisters, uh, the, the, the critics of Jesus are saying, are, are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and are not all of his sisters with us. So he had brothers and he had sisters, multiple sisters, more than one sister. We assume probably at least three. Otherwise, they would say both his sisters, right? So he had all of his sisters were there. So there were, there were five boys and at least three sisters, large family by modern 
standards. All of these would have been, of course, younger siblings, younger brothers and sisters, because we know that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. She was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And so she, 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 uh, she gave birth to him, but that wasn't her last child. Eventually, her and Joseph were married. Eventually, they had sort of natural marriage relations. And eventually, she had other children who became what are, what, what are essentially, technically, the half-brothers and the half-sisters of Jesus. I know the Roman Catholic Church in its uh, latter years have, has tried to perpetuate the doctrine of Mary's perpetual uh, virginity as if somehow some sort of abstinence in natural marriage relations makes her more holy and more pure. But that flies in the face of what the scripture tells us. Mary had other children. She had other children by Joseph. She had half brothers and half sisters. And these would have been brothers and sisters that would have grown up in the same home with Jesus. They would have been in the same age range as him. They would have watched him mature and grow. He would have been there right alongside of them with all the experiences, with all the trials, with all the difficulties of growing up in that house. A large family in, I'm sure, confined settings in those days. They would have known his character. They would have known his personality. They would have known his kindness. They would have seen his sacrifice and his selflessness, his servanthood, his love, his honesty, integrity. They would have known all of those things. And here they were now gathered at the door trying to speak to him. The second thing we know from the other Gospels is that in spite of all that experience, they didn't believe in him. In fact, John tells us explicitly in John 7, which from a chronological standpoint was about uh, 12 months before Matthew chapter 12. So, so going back about a year before this event, we read that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea, that is Jerusalem, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We already talked about this. It reached a point in Jesus' life where it was so hostile down in Jerusalem that he confined himself up to Galilee. And now here in Matthew chapter 12, it's near the end of his Galilean ministry. But for, for the better part of a year at least, his brothers didn't believe in him. In fact, John goes on to say this, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see, your works, see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now all that was about a year earlier. So about a year earlier, his brothers were not believing in him. In fact, not, not only were they not believing in him, they were trying to reason with him. They were trying to persuade him based on their own worldly perspective of what they think ought to be his worldly goals of finding prominence and finding sort of the spotlight and elevating his station and, and uh, you know, promoting his brand and finding a platform, all those, all those sort of worldly means that you would expect, all the ways of the flesh that you would expect, all the ways that someone who isn't spiritually minded and doesn't understand the, the providence and plan of God, all of those ways they were 
trying to argue with Jesus, this is the way you should pursue your career. This is the way that you should get your name out there. This is the way that you should sort of take advantage of the moment and your situation. Clearly, they didn't understand him, his reasoning, his ways, his choices, his priorities, or any of those things. They didn't understand them because they didn't understand God. They didn't understand him because they weren't believing. They didn't understand him because they weren't spiritually minded. And clearly they were willing because of all that to question his logic and his wisdom and his timing and everything. No sense of reverence, no sense of lordship, no sense of recognition of who they're dealing with. Now this wouldn't always be the case. We know eventually two of his brothers, James, excuse me, Acts 1.14 tells us that some of his brothers did eventually believe in him after the resurrection. His brother James would actually become the primary teaching pastor of the Jerusalem church, very prominent, and would write the book of James. His other brother, Jude, would go on to believe in him and go on to write the book of Jude. So we know that some of his brothers did eventually believe in him, but at this point, during his earthly ministry, they did not. In fact, Jesus seems to confirm that down in verse 50 when he talks about his true family being those who do the will of his Father in heaven, implying that his natural family at this point did not. They didn't follow the will of God in heaven. They were unbelievers. The third thing we know from the other Gospels is that they at one point had tried to seize Jesus. Mark 3.21 tells us this. They had tried to seize Jesus for they were saying, He is out of His mind. They believed that He had lost His marbles. Uh, Maybe, uh, this is also uh, before Matthew chapter 12, uh, sometime uh, prior to this event, uh, they had come because they thought that His thinking was irrational. It was not stable. Maybe they had heard the rumors that he was casting out demons by the power of demons. Or maybe they heard some of the criticisms and accusations that he himself had a demon. And maybe they were worried about his mental health, but they were ready and willing to listen to and even embrace and be moved and swayed by the criticisms that came against him from the watching world. And now... Yet again, here in Matthew chapter 12, they're coming again to try for maybe similar reasons and motives because of their concern about him, about his mental health, about his safety, or whatever it might be. Perhaps they had been told the rumor from back in chapter 12, verse 14, where it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So maybe they were worried that he was just going to get himself in trouble. Maybe they were worried that Jesus, if he didn't tone down his rhetoric, if he didn't stop making people so angry, if he didn't soften his convictions, if he didn't speak so uh, 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 bluntly, or or if he continued to speak so bluntly, if, if he wouldn't tone all that stuff down, he was just simply going to get himself into more trouble. And they were trying to intervene at this point. I'm sure they're... Affections were true. I'm sure there was some natural concern, brother to brother, sister to brother, mother to son, genuinely 
wanting to help, thinking that they were doing him a service. But in reality, they didn't understand him. They were confounded. They were confused. They didn't understand why he continued to make people so angry. They didn't understand why he was so upset by the hypocrisy that he saw around him. They didn't understand why he was so adamant about having God's word taught faithfully and clearly. He didn't understand why. They didn't understand why he was so worried for those who would twist or have different interpretations of God's word. They couldn't understand any of it. They were confounded and confused by all of it. They couldn't get their mind around what drove him. Now, these are not atheistic people in the traditional sense. In fact, they're, they're Jews. Like every other Jew in that day, they were religious people. They would have themselves gone to the synagogue. They would have themselves listened to the Torah. They would have themselves gone to the temple in Jerusalem and made sacrifices from time to time. They were not anti-religious people, but they were religious to a point. They could take appropriate levels of religion, appropriate stances, respectable stances. But in this situation, they clearly thought Jesus had crossed the line. He'd taken his religion, his convictions, his zeal too far. And so Matthew tells us they show up and they want to talk to him. There's a sense of urgency. They don't want to wait till the end of the day. They don't want to wait for him to finish up his teaching at a more convenient time. They don't want to wait for him to get home, uh, go back to his home or any of those things. They come. There's a sense of urgency. They want to stop. They want to interrupt. They want to put an end to his teaching, uh, perhaps persuaded that his radical statements were about to cross a threshold. And they wanted to see if they could pull him back. Now, again, you would think of all people that these would be the people to first believe in him. You would think that of all people, these people who grew up in the same household he grew up in, who watched him walk out his life, who watched him mature into a man, who had shared some of the most uh, intimate and, uh, and uh, exposed moments in his life, you would think that of all people, these would be the first to believe in him. But all of this just simply highlights that belief is not a natural phenomenon. It doesn't come from natural circumstances. It is not an automatic result of your environment, not an automatic result of your socioeconomic, relational, familial connections. It doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally. It's something that God has to do in your heart. Something that God has to do directly from Him to you and not through your family. Which brings us really to the second development that Matthew talk, uh, details here which is this clarification from Jesus of his true spiritual family. He asks the question there in verse 40, 
8. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He's asking not because, you know, he needs information. This is a rhetorical question. He's not asking them to sort of spell out the names for them. He's really what he's asking is the what is your assumption of the primacy of relationship here? Who are you thinking are my closest connections, my closest relationships? That's the point of the question. And in verse 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Clearly speaking there metaphorically. Here's my family, he's saying. These are the ones who relate to me in ways that go beyond the physical and beyond the natural and beyond the familial. These are the ones who have relationships with me that supersede all natural relationships. Now family for Jesus is defined not by blood nor by marriage, but it's defined primarily by connection to him. By love for Christ. It's the priority or the prioritizing principle of his connections. Jesus, of course, has already said this. We saw it back over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, when Jesus, you remember, was telling his disciples, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, you can't be my disciple if you prioritize these natural relationships over your relationship to me. You can't be my disciple unless my relationship with you reigns supreme above every other relationship, even your own family, to the point that they might interpret your connection to them not as love but as hate. By comparison, they might interpret your connection to them not as love but as hate. Well, what what he's really talking about there is priority. Priority over every other relationship so that the love of Christ dominates everything in your life. By the way, not only your relationship to others, but even your relationship to yourself. Because he goes on to say, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, whoever's not willing to crucify even himself, whoever's not willing to deal with his own love of himself is not worthy of me. A total renunciation of every connection, every pursuit, every desire, every request that would bring you into conflict with the demands of Christ has to be prioritized. Connection to Christ has to be prioritized. So that when these family members do make their requests, when they do make their demands, it will sometimes mean that you cannot meet those demands. Just like it's going on in Christ's life right here. And it will be at times offensive. They will themselves be confounded and confused. They won't always agree with the decisions that you make. They won't always understand your priorities. 
But when you come to Christ, He so reorients your life eternally, spiritually, so that the natural and temporal relationships are completely reoriented. And now you align more closely with other disciples of Christ than you might even align with your own natural family. It doesn't mean you forget your family. You know, if you immigrate to another country, you uh, go through their immigration system and no doubt they have all of their forms and all of the sort of documents you fill out. And along the way, when you are immigrating to another country, along the way, you will have to, at some point, swear allegiance to that new nation. You will have to uh, go through some sort of ceremony, some sort of pledge, where they will know that you are transferring your allegiance from wherever you used to live to this new land that you're in, that you're willing to take up all the responsibilities and all the duties as well as all the rights of that new land. doesn't mean that you forget your old land. It doesn't mean you forget your old language. It doesn't mean you forget your old stories that you knew growing up from your own culture, your own history. It doesn't even mean that you lay aside those affections, but there's a definite transfer of allegiance, a definite transfer of obligation. Well, the same thing happens when you come to Christ. It's not as if you cut off your family automatically, but you are, you are pledging your allegiance, your devotion, your commitment now as supreme above everything else to Christ. And sometimes it brings a strain on the family. Sometimes they might even consider you a traitor. Someone who's abandoned them. It will bring with it criticisms and ostracism. It will bring with it suspicions and distancing. But there's no other way, Jesus says. This is what it means to be a disciple. So he's telling them that as as someone who preaches and upholds the gospel, his new priority in family is his disciples. His ultimate family is no longer defined by blood relationships or proximity where he lived and where he grew up or all of his childhood experiences. It is now defined by an overarching desire to please God. Which is this point in verse 50 and it's sort of the third development here as Jesus characterizes his spiritual family more specifically, he says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is not superficial association anymore. This isn't a question of whether or not you are sort of born into a situation. Really, even religiously, it's not a question of whether you belong to a church or whether you belong to uh, an association or a denomination or whether you've listed your name on some organizational chart or whatever it might be. What is it that defines and characterizes 
participation in this new family. One thing. You do the will of the Father in heaven. That's what he says. It's not that you take the name and label of a Christian. It's not that you say you belong to this or that church. That's not where this spiritual connection comes from. Otherwise, uh, the religious connection that Jesus might have had in Judaism with his own mother and brother and sisters would have been enough. But what is it that creates this new connection? He says it is a willingness or a desire to do the will of the Father in heaven. This has always been what defines primarily people's relationship to Jesus. Meaning that they are in relationship with Him. Meaning that they are in His family. Meaning that they know Him in that kind of an intimate way. In fact, in 1 John, John says this, By this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. And he's using the word know there in the sense of relationship, intimate relationship. He's not saying that, that you just simply know historical facts about Christ, that you have sort of cog- cognitive comprehension of him he's saying by this you know that you are in relationship that you know Christ in that personal kind of a way this is how you know that you know him in that personal kind of a way if you keep his commandments in fact he goes on in the next verse whoever does not whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him so it doesn't matter what you call yourself. You might say, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a this, I'm a that. You might even say I'm a Christian. It doesn't really matter what you verbally say. What matters, if you want to be a part of the family of God, if you want to feel and experience and know this connection, first of all with Christ, and then secondly with his other disciples, if you want to be a part of that spiritual family, then what is necessary is for you to do the will of the Father, to obey Christ's commandments. Too many, like Paul says in Titus 1, profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. You want to know what it is that... uh, identifies you as a member of the family of God, it is the fact that you want to please God. By the way, don't confuse Jesus' words here. He's not saying that this is the way you become a member of God's family. He's saying this is the way you are identified as a member of God's family. Your children don't become a member of your family by taking on your family features. They don't decide to become a member of your family by getting a nose like yours and ears like yours and a smile like yours. Those are just simply the qualities that help identify them as a part of your family. Well, Jesus, he's just saying that you want to know how to identify my family, 
You want to know how to identify who are the true members of my family, the true disciples? They are the ones who want to do the will of my Father in heaven. Meaning that when they hear of the will of the Father in heaven, they do the will of the Father in heaven. It isn't just verbal. In fact, John says it this way. He says, if you say that you know him and do not keep his commandments, the truth is not in you. The truth is not in you. There's something missing on the inside. This is an internal reality primarily. In other places, John says it this way, if we say we have no sin and we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, if we say we have not sinned in another place, he says, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what John is telling us is that in order for you to know God, you have to keep his commandments. And in order for you to be someone who keeps his commandments, his word has to be within you. It has to be inside of you. It has to be rooted in your heart. It can't be something that's simply external. The Word of God can't simply be something that someone else talks about, that the preacher talks about, that the Sunday school teacher talks about, that your spouse talks about or your parents talk about. That Word that all those people are talking about outside of you has to be inside of you, John says. You have to have it placed there, planted there by Christ. That obedience, in other words, has to begin on the inside. That yearning and hungering to do the will of the Father in heaven has to come from within. As Paul says, we who are believers have been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We're filled with this. John 8.31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And as he goes on to say, and my word will abide in you. So you want a spiritual connection, a spiritual family connected through Christ by the Spirit. You're going to have to have this characteristic. You're going to have to yearn to please God. And if you don't yearn to please God, you're not a part of that family. If you don't yearn to please God, to do the will of the Father in heaven, to obey Jesus' commands, then your connection is just outward. It might be natural. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you were raised in the church. Memorize some Bible verses, whatever. But all that's just natural. It's not supernatural. And Jesus is telling you that even his own mother and brother and sisters, if they didn't have this spiritual connection, they were no closer to him than any other person. The people he's close to are these people. These people who become His true disciples. Now the good news is this. The very same thing I've been telling you. The good news is this. This kind of relationship with Christ 
It doesn't come naturally. Meaning that there's no prerequisite of you having the right kind of heritage and the right kind of background and the right kind of upbringing and the right kind of history and the right kind of whatever. That's not the way you get into this family. You don't get into this family by being brought up in a Christian home. You don't get in this family by knowing enough Bible verses. You don't get in this family by being a member of a church. You don't get in this family any of those natural ways. None of them will help you. Growing up in the very home where Christ lived would not help you. You get in this family the same way everyone else gets in this family, supernaturally. By asking God, by confessing to God your sins and asking Him to forgive you. To plant His Word and His Spirit in your heart. And letting Him make you a new creature in Christ. Scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. A new heart, a new desire, a new yearning to do the will of God, new desire to, to obey the commands of Christ, and new, rich, intimate depth of relationship with spiritual family. It's a blessing, you know, when the Lord does this within our marriages, certainly, within our relationship with our with our kids or with our parents between brothers and sisters when they have a spiritual connection that goes beyond the natural connection it's a sweet blessing in this world but it isn't limited just to that it is something that goes beyond that it's deeper it's more profound it's richer a spiritual connection that comes from a spiritual work that God does in the heart of everyone who comes to Him. So that today, if you're willing to take up your cross and follow Christ, today, if you're willing to renounce even your own life, today, if you're willing to confess your sins, to ask God for forgiveness, to ask Him for renewal in your heart, today, if you're willing to do all of that, Jesus is willing to say, welcome, brother or sister, to the family of God. Father, we're so grateful today for this hope and this promise and this joy that we can go beyond what is merely natural. And Lord, indeed, you have blessed us, so many of us, with families families where we've been nurtured and loved and provided for. But they're imperfect families and imperfect relationships because there's none like you who love us so perfectly so that we're grateful to turn our hearts to you and to find our primary family through you to find it in your love and grace, in your truth and light, in your way and commandment. We yield ourselves to you. 
to do the will of the Father in heaven and to obey all your commands, even as you welcome us into your family. Lord, we're grateful for our brothers and sisters, thankful for the connections we share both now and that we'll share for eternity. They are rich gifts from you that could not ever be found in ourselves, but only in the light and the grace of your truth. And we bless you and thank you for all of these things. In Christ's name, amen.